1: If you haven't noticed the 2024 presidential election season, well, it already started. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset.
0: It's time to finish the job. Finish the job. I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. We are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future.
2: I am running for United States president to
0: revive those ideals in this country. I'm announcing that I'm running for the presidency of the United States. I feel I have a moral, a religious, and a patriotic duty to give back to a country that's been so good to my family and to me.
1: That's right. Election Day is a year and a half away. So what's the state of our democracy? And how can we strengthen it? We're joined by Will Howell. He's chair of the political science department at the University of Chicago and director of the school's Center for Effective Government. Today, WBEZ, the Sun-Times, and the Center for Effective Government are kicking off a new series. We're calling it the Democracy Solutions Project. The election's 18 months away, so it sounds to me like we've got lots of time. But by the looks of it, Will, the big day is going to come quicker than we think.
2: It's going to come quicker than you think, that's for sure. These things pick up steam, and there's a kind of breathless quality to um, campaigns. We a whole lot of horse race coverage, a whole lot of who's high, who's low in the polls. And I think part of our effort here as part of this series is to ground the discussion going forward, to take advantage of this moment, to think more deeply about democracy. So it isn't yeah. just about who's in front and who's lagging, but where are we in a in a grander scheme of things?
1: Breathless is such a good word there, mm-hmm. for sure. So when we go beyond the day-to-day politics and and the announcements, like we just heard of candidates who are saying, I'm putting my hat in the ring in this race— we know that there's a bigger conversation to be had here about our institutions and about our democracy in this country. Would you say that the state of democracy is strong right now? How Um, would would you rate it?
2: How would I rate it? Um, I guess I'd use two words. I'd say partial and diminished. Partial insofar as it's worth remembering that our democracy, um, since the nation's founding, has only attended to over the broad course of the American history to a narrow set of interest. Women have only had the right to vote for just over a hundred years. It wasn't until the 64 and 65 civil rights and voting rights acts that, that black americans were incorporated into the larger polity um and so our partial first word second word is diminished mm-hmm. in that i think really since over the last decade the levels of engagement and the distrust and um and the lies and the coarsening of our discourse and the polarization have reached a level in which it's really hard to get our bearings in order to have the serious minded conversations that we need to have in order to attend to our democracy mm-hmm. um You know, our institutions withstood the Trump presidency, that's true, but we're also on our heels and there's a lot of work to do.
1: Now, I'm Canadian and I remember just being saturated by U.S. programming while living in Canada. And one thing that struck me and strikes me even more now living here is constantly hearing political leaders talk about things like, you know, we live in the best country in the world. Mm. We live in the richest nation in the world. You know, this is the most powerful. We're the leaders of the free world. What do you make of all that rhetoric?
2: Well there's a lot of liberty for a good number of people and there's a great deal of wealth in this country and there's a great deal of influence on the international um the international scale um all that is true there are things to be proud of um there's also uh a lot of failure and i think it's worth taking um the proper measure of that failure when you think about how much we spend on healthcare relative to what the healthcare outcomes that we have as a country, when you think about, um, the, the coherence of our immigration policy, when you think about rising levels of inequality between the rich and the poor, there are real profound problems that our country faces. And we struggle not just in the face of those problems, but even to get, you know, to find the leverage we need in order to make our way forward. Mm. So, um, Yes, let us be proud let us um, Let us love our country. It is an act of love of our country to want to set to work on these problems and to and to think seriously about the deeper institutional reforms that are needed in order to make our way forward
1: so to that end, right now, what are the biggest threats to democracy in the u s
2: There are a variety. There are concerns about the health and well-being of our elections. There are concerns about misinformation and disinformation. Um, To my mind, I would lift up a couple. I would lift up the rise of populism, which um, has taken hold in our national politics and has really taken hold of one major American party, the Republican Party, um, which represents a distinct threat to democratic – small d democratic institutions – and creates a space that wherein anger and disaffection are fomented and it becomes really hard to roll up our sleeves and set to work on um, improving our democracy as populism takes hold. I'd say that's one. And the other one that I would point to is one that I alluded to just now, which is um, the failure of governments, plural – to solve problems. We, we learn to live with our problems. That's true at the national level. That's mm-hmm. true here in Chicago. So you're
1: talking about all levels here.
2: All levels, for sure. And, and we've got to find ways of attending to the impediments to problem solving, to thinking about how do we actually make headway on the very real problems that, that we face. Because what happens over time is in the face of that failure, there's a growing segment of the public that just sort of throws up its hands and says, What's the point of the engagement? Like, mm-hmm. what's the point of making the investment? And then when somebody like a populist steps forward and says, you know, forget those parties and those institutions, look to me to be your savior. Um, those kinds of appeals start to resonate. And that—that that is the way to lose a democracy.
1: Some people see the, the growing disconnect between the Supreme Court and the public polling as, as a major concern. Uh, there's a recent poll that showed that more than half the nation overall disapproves of how the court is doing its job. What do you think?
2: Um, I think it's quite clear that the composition of the current Supreme Court does not represent the uh, interests of or the ideological leanings of the broader population. That's quite clear. Um, it's worth then backing up the question and say, how did that come to be? Right? Why do we have this particular um, uh, composition? And it's worth then reflecting upon and thinking about reforms mm-hmm. to nominations to the Supreme Court, I'll say the rise of what i would call minority rule that is the extent to which some subsets of the american public lay claim to broader institutions the the the, the senate is a rewards is, is profoundly anti-democratic insofar as every state, regardless of its population, has exactly two representatives. And it turns out that there's a big, um, small state advantage for one particular party, which then means there are instances, as there was through the first couple of years of the Trump presidency, wherein the Republicans may have a majority of the seats um, within the Senate while representing a decided minority of the American population. Yeah. So this is a general phenomenon as a real challenge.
1: We live in this nation as well, where millions of people from one party don't believe that the guy who won the White House from the other party actually did it legitimately. So misinformation and and disinformation, I would say, are also big concerns here.
2: For sure. Um, and they work in a couple of ways. Like one is the lies and the disenchantment um, that follow from the lies, right? The sense that everything is broken. W- why participate in the um, in these elections when it's all rigged? That that leads to a degradation of the health and well-being of our democracy. There's another piece, though, that's worth lifting up, which is that in order for our democracy to take hold, it's really important that people within their parties hold their elected officials. That is, the people who represent their views. To account. And when you believe that the other side is regularly cheating and that the other side is extreme relative to where you are, then the misbehavior that you observe within your own party, you're less likely to call out because, yeah. shoot, it's just a fight over power at the end of the day. Right. That's ultimately what it is. And better my guys than the opposition. Um and so these lies do a lot of part of the another way that the lies work in terms of degrading, degrading our democracy is it reduces the probability that within parties that like minded folk will hold each other to account. And when that falls apart and all we have are these kind of cross partisan um, um, wars, we're 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 in real trouble.
1: How do we explain this unprecedented scenario that's playing out right now, too, where we've got a former president who's been indicted and is going on trial next year? And that former president's actually running again.
2: It's really something. There, there, there are the indictments. There's the January 6th insurrection. There are a lot, the lies surrounding like how um, is the 2020 possible? election. How is it possible? He has a lot of support. That's ultimately what it is, right? It's that he has a tremendous amount of support and a significant number of members of his own parties are willing to accommodate him. Um, and they aren't calling him out. Um, and he has weaponized the efforts to um, hold him to account as part of a larger narrative that takes the form of everything is broken. Right, the the federal government and and the mainstream you know rhinos um, within the Republican Party um, are they've all sold they've all sold out true Americans. yeah, um, And that's really uh, that's really a problem if we're mm. going to have a meaningful and a serious-minded conversation across difference and how to attend to um, the profound challenges that we face.
1: So there's another threat our democracy faces right now, which is the, the rise of right-wing extremist hate, right? Um, I, I want to hear your thoughts on how you think that's going to shape the 2024 election. I'm going to give you some more context. We've seen uh, both advances and setbacks, in the the fight against American white supremacists, anti-government, other violent right-wing groups in recent years. Now, according to the Brookings Institution, the number of deaths from terrorism and other extreme forms of violence, that's been low. But uh, violent rhetoric and threats, that's becoming normalized in everyday politics, as we've kind of talked about. So talk about how you see all of those trends shaping next year's election.
2: Um, I'd say that extremism, violent extremism, um, is actually an enduring feature of our politics that that isn't something that 's altogether new The lament that I have frankly is is that at the at the center of the political distribution um, there isn 't much accommodation of difference there isn't um, uh, discipline within the parties in order to marginalize those extremist voices. Those extremist voices have been around for a very, very long time. Um, and that what you see with the uh, January 6th insurrection is the kind of mainstreaming of those kinds of claims mm-hmm. and the accommodation of a larger party to the narratives that are lifted up by those extremist voices. That's of real that, that's of real concern. But I don't think we should think that 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 you know, uh, right wing extremism is entering um, onto the scene for the first time in 2024. It's been around for a very long time.
1: So let's jump into possible solutions here, Will, or what we've been calling antidotes to some of the challenges that we just laid out. So some of the ideas come from academia, others, uh, we're looking at grassroots organizations, cities, states, other countries, right?
2: Sure. I mean, there are lessons to be learned by institutional innovations that happen at the local and the state level, just as there are lessons to be learned by looking abroad at the struggles that other countries have faced in meeting the threat of populism. and but the big theme here a big theme is to think about institutional reforms i mean when you when we want to write our politics part of the game is trying to elect the right kinds of people people who are committed to democracy mm-hmm. that's for sure true um but there also is work to be done in thinking about the architecture the scaffolding of democracy and to mm-hmm. the extent that we're having a hard time we struggle to speak meaningfully across difference to accommodate um difference and and to think about how do we meaningfully meet modern challenges? Um, part of the work that has to do with is is rethinking the institutions that we've inherited um, in light of the challenges, the modern challenges that we face today.
1: So we we don't have great voter turnout in in the U.S. Uh, one of my producers was telling me about how there's mandatory voting in Australia, which I hadn't heard of before. Um, experts there are saying that it, it leads to a, a, just a much more representative and responsive democracy in that country. Do we maybe need to rethink the way that we vote in America?
2: We for sure need to rethink how we vote. I mean, I think that the the lessons that come out of Australia are terrific insofar as they're very minor um, fines and people can waive them if they so choose um, if uh, for, for failing to vote and that people can cast empty um, blank ballots if that's what they so choose. And yet the turnout there is much higher and there's a greater level of Um, an enhancement of systems of accountability there in light of, and most of the evidence shows, in light of this particular innovation. There are also conversations about changes to voting rules. Um, How do we count the votes? Things like ranked choice voting is something that we could think about. Um, It doesn't have to be first past the post majority, um, plurality winners, excuse me, um, that that have a variety of problems downstream when you think about strategic Mm -hmm. voting and the rise of extremism. Um, And then also efforts to just, make it easier to vote. So the simplest way to make it easier to vote is to have an election day. To think about matters of election timing, we hold elections all throughout the year on, you know, not just the first Tuesday of November in even years, but you know, in 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 April on on an odd Thursday in an odd year. And and what do you know, turnout is remarkably low during those periods. We can rethink the timing of elections as well.
1: So as we get deeper into the 2024 campaign season, what are you going to have your eye on?
2: Um, I'm going to have my eye on a couple of things. One is my hope for our series is that what we have our eye on is this concern about democracy, to think about what does it mean to improve, to strengthen democracy, and how might we make the most of this period of heightened interest in politics in order to shift our attention to the need for a variety of solutions. Because there's no one solution. There's no magic bullet here. There's lots and lots of solutions at all levels of government that we need to be paying attention to. And the other... One, can I throw out one more? Oh, please. Fate of the Republican Party. That's a big one that's being played out. I think there's mm. a big question mark about what Republicans are going to stand for, who's going to be at the helm. We need to keep our eye on that.
1: We've been talking with Will Howell, director of the University of Chicago Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy. Always a pleasure, Will.
2: It's so good to see you.
1: This episode of Reset was produced by Dan Tucker, and it was edited by Ethan Schwab and Stephanie Kim. Stay up to date on all the big stories happening in our city and across the country by subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, be sure to leave us a rating and review so that more listeners can find our show. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Let's talk again tomorrow.